Morning, everybody. Um, we're going to read from God's Word now. So we're reading from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and you'll find that in the Bibles in the pews in front of you, if you've not brought your own. And um, it's on page 1182. Paul's labour for the church. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everything, uh, present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not yet, who I have not met me, who have not met me personally, sorry. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, incidentally, Brenda, not only for the prayers, but for the clarity of your writing, which meant I had no problem in reading them. Let's pray again, shall we? Thank you, Father, for the glorious riches that you have given us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us this morning to gain understanding that we would know Jesus better. Amen. I, I wonder how you would answer if I were to ask you, what is your goal in life? Or, or perhaps, uh, what do you hope in life for your children, or your grandchildren, or or, or any other child you know. Just just think about it for a moment, your goal in life or your hope in life for your children, grandchildren, or others. I wonder what words are are coming to mind. Now, uh, of course, your answer will depend upon the level of generality at which you're uh, thinking, Uh, and of course, there is no one precise right answer. But I ask that question because I suspect that many people, including many Christians, would give an answer which is not in line with what the Bible says. For example, I suspect a lot of people, particularly incidentally when thinking about their children, would say happiness. That's my goal. That's the goal for my children. But you know, the Bible never says that we should pursue happiness. It it, it wants Christians to have joy, 
But that's a consequence of understanding what God has done for us. It's the result of pursuing other goals. Well, you might say that contentment, that's, that's a better word, and certainly it's good to have contentment. But, but again, it's the result of pursuing other goals. What about fulfillment? That, that sounds more promising, doesn't it? But if by fulfillment we mean a subjective sense of fulfillment, then, then, then it's not right. Because we need to live lives that fulfill other proper objectives. In fact, we need to fulfill the purpose for which God created us. And in order to do that, we need something else. And that's where today's reading comes in. If you've got it in front of you, it's on page 1183 of the Church Bibles. Um, Take a look at verse 28. Paul says this, He, that's Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. What is it that Paul wanted for all Christians, including those, incidentally, who, like the Colossians, he'd never met? Well, he wanted them to be fully mature in Christ. And and note, this isn't something just for some special Christians. No, in the original, the word everyone appears three times. What it actually says in the Greek is admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Do you get the point? This is something for all of us. It's not just something some Christians move on to. So, what does it mean to be mature? Well, as so often, probably the easiest thing is to start with the reverse. What does an immature person look like? Uh, I suspect you can all think of immature people, though I don't suggest you do so now. But, 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 but think about what, 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 what do immature people do? First of all, they make hasty and ill-thought-through decisions, don't they? They tend to overreact to things, good and bad. They tend to follow the latest trend, the latest fashion, or perhaps transient enthusiasms, don't they? They tend to be rather frivolous and perhaps self-centred. And above all, they don't have any well-ordered purpose or plan in life. And, And what do mature people look like? Well, a mature person is effectively the reverse of that. A mature person will have thought through a proper purpose in their life. They won't be frivolous. Oh, yes, they will have fun, but they'll be basically serious-minded. They won't be dedicated followers of fashion or be subject to transient enthusiasms. And what's more, they won't be rocked by disaster, nor will they be bowled over by triumph. And the result of all of this? Well, they'll be able to make carefully thought through and appropriate decisions. Now, of course, that could be said 
in a purely secular setting. But do note, Paul says that our goal is maturity in Christ. All of this needs to be related to our position as Christians. We are in Christ, united with Christ. And and when we are pursuing maturity, we need to recognise we're pursuing it relating to Jesus, relating to him. Come back to that in just a moment. But, but, But how do we pursue this maturity? Well, there's an awful lot that could be said on that subject. In fact, you could almost say most of the New Testament letters are about precisely that subject. And and I must restrict myself to what it says in today's reading. Um, but, But Paul does give us a clear indication. In fact, go back to verse 28. What does he say he does in order to help people to maturity? Well, he says he proclaims Jesus admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that they may be presented he may present everyone fully mature in Christ Paul admonished and taught people the word admonishing incidentally means correcting wrong thinking in in that in this context so what Paul says he did in order to help people to be mature in Christ is to get their thinking straight and to teach them with all wisdom. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, to explain the what might be described as intermediate goals he pursued with that in mind. Verse 2, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may, under, may, may, they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now we'll come back to the bit about united in love. But but let's start by noting that what Paul is saying here is that in order to become mature, he wants all Christians to have the riches of complete understanding so that they may know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Jesus Christ. And, and so if we want to pursue Christian maturity, we need to do two things. We need, first of all, to make sure that our own thinking is straightened out, that we sort out our thinking, and second, that we pursue this understanding. And of course, that requires effort. Now, I know some Christians suggest that it doesn't, and many more hope that it doesn't. But, but actually it does. It takes a lifetime of reading the Bible, of praying, of discussing these things with other Christians. Oh yeah, and listening to sermons, incidentally, I hope. But we need again, as I said a moment ago, to relate it to Christ. Do you notice Jesus is at the centre of what Paul is saying? He says he wants Christians to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. There are several things that need to be said about that. Uh, First of all, um, the word mystery and the word hidden. Paul is not saying 
that the things we need to know are somehow disguised, somehow hidden, perhaps only accessible to certain special people, or if you're in some way initiated into things. No, when Paul talks about a mystery or things being hidden, what he's meaning is that at one time they hadn't been revealed by God but now they have been revealed to God's people. He says that expressly, actually, in verse 26, if you go back there. Having said that he's been commissioned by God to present the word of God, he says that that is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. That's really important. Because this knowledge and wisdom of which we're talking is not something that is for special people. It's accessible to all of us. And and we need to remember that. There's no excuse for us not pursuing it. And then secondly, uh, when Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, he doesn't mean that we should abandon all other sources of wisdom and knowledge in the sense of saying that we are going to abandon learning about physics. We're going to abandon reading history. We're even going to abandon the Old Testament and even Paul's own letters because all we're going to concentrate on is the words of Jesus in the Gospels. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is that Jesus is the lens through which all things need to be seen and need to be understood. You want to learn about physics? Well, that's excellent. And as you do so, just remember what we read last week. In Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Uh, You enjoy reading history? Well, that is also excellent. Uh, And as you do it, Remember that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign Lord of the universe. Remember, God is overall the Lord of history. You read the Old Testament. Well, I'm glad to hear it. But as you do it, remember that it, see, it points towards Jesus and reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. As it said in our reading from last week, He is before all things, and here's the key, in him all things hold together. He's the key to all knowledge and wisdom. In him all knowledge and wisdom holds together. And then, of course, the the cornerstone, the foundation of that knowledge and wisdom is the gospel itself. It is the good news that Jesus Christ, God himself, came to earth and died for our sins, that we could be forgiven and receive reconciliation. Thank you. Peace with God. That, that's, that is the key to understanding. And we, we don't move on from that. And it's the key to Christian maturity. Take a look at verse 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Note again, they use the word mystery to mean something that Paul immediately speaks about. There, it's not secret. That's the big thing. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
As Paul says in chapter 1, this is a hope stored up for us in heaven. And it's key to our approach to Christian maturity. Because keeping that hope in front of us puts our entire lives in context. It enables us to orientate our thinking, to orientate our whole lives aright and in a proper way. We never move on from that basic Christian hope. So, in order to seek Christian maturity, we need to seek complete understanding and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Jesus. But let's go back to the bit I left out a moment ago. United in love. Paul says he wants Christians to be united in love. How does that fit in with all the other things that he's been saying? Why does he suddenly raise this issue of being united in love as if from nowhere? Well, I'd suggest it's because of this. Seeking Christian maturity is not intended to be a solitary activity. Paul was writing to uh, the Christians in Corinth, a little Christian fellowship in Corinth. Now, of course, he wanted each and every one of them individually to move to Christian maturity. But, But he envisaged them doing it together. Together, we can encourage one another. That's how often we get encouragement from one another. And we can build one another up. A church that is united in love makes it far easier for Christians to grow towards maturity. You sometimes hear people say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. In fact, I've heard people say that they're Christians but don't go to church on, I think, three occasions in visiting in the last couple of weeks. Now, it's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Uh, A Christian is someone who has repented and accepted Jesus Christ by faith and relies on him for their acceptance by God. That's a Christian. But if you don't belong to a Christian community, a church, how are you going to grow to Christian maturity? Furthermore, the Bible indicates that we all have a responsibility to help one another grow to Christian maturity. How are you going to do that if you don't belong to a Christian community? Now, you may think, I really am preaching to the choir on this one because you're here. So actually, that's good. But, but there is something. This is the reason why we're so keen on everyone gathering weekly in this church That's why, for 40 years, Joanna and I have tried every time we're around to come to church. We need it, and we owe it to other people to do so. That's why we want everyone to be in small groups. Because in that way, we can encourage one another. We can express our unity in love. We can grow to maturity, and we can build up others towards maturity. Let's commit ourselves to be encouraging one another, being encouraged and being united in love as we work towards Christian maturity. 
So far, I've focused on the positive things that Paul has to say in this passage. But there's a concern underlying those positive things. He hints at the concern by the word admonishing, correcting wrong thinking. And he comes to it expressly in verse 4 of chapter 2. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. What Paul is worried about is that the Colossian Christians will be deceived by well-articulated, plausible teaching or attitudes uh, that will mislead them. Now, he was talking, he was writing rather, to people who were a small group of new Christians in a pagan society who didn't have the New Testament to read and they didn't have trained teachers. They were very vulnerable indeed. And so are we. Like the Colossians, we need to beware. We need to be on our guard. Every day, we are exposed to a modern, secular worldview that manifests itself in innumerable ways and which is not in line with a biblical worldview. And and we can absorb it without even realizing that it's happening. It's not the obvious points that are wrong that are dangerous. Well, they they are dangerous, but, but, but they're not the main thing. The big issue is those unspoken assumptions that pervade our society and that we can absorb, not even realizing that they're inconsistent with what the Bible says. I've already given a couple of examples uh, in passing of that. Uh, the, The attitude to the pursuit of happiness or the common understanding of fulfillment. But there are many others. Um, Take the idea of freedom, for example. Now, to be clear, uh, freedom is very important. Things like freedom of speech, freedom of conscience are very important. They're under attack in our society and we need to make sure we defend them. But, as Eddie has pointed out in previous sermons, there is a difference between the modern secular view of freedom and the Christian view. The the, the modern secular view tends to view freedom as freedom from something. In particular, freedom from any constraints on me. The biblical view is it's freedom from those things that stop us serving God. It is freedom to, freedom to serve God. And and, and the secular view is actually quite self-centered. The biblical view is not. And look what Paul has to say about this. Look at verse uh, 25. He says that he's become the servant of the church by the commission of God. Paul was greatly aware of how he'd been freed from condemnation. And what was it for? It was to be commissioned by God to serve the church. And when writing to the Galatians... Paul was appalled that they hadn't understood they were free. 
He told them, for goodness sake, stop following rules to try to get yourself to God. You're free from all that. Salvation is by grace alone. And he says, you're free from all these religious rules and requirements. And then he goes on like this. This is Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Beware of the concept of freedom. The word's being used in a different way in our society from the way the Bible uses it. What about authenticity? That is a very slippery word. I don't find any concept like it in the Bible, and I've never found anyone who's able to give a clear definition of it. But I think it's commonly used to mean something like being as you really are. Now, now, that sounds great. Don't we all want to be as we really are? Isn't that good? Well, actually, no. Because, you see, the Bible tells us that what we're really like is that we have corrupted natures and we have the tendency to rebel against God. And and, and of course, uh, if we are Christians, we have been released from the consequences that and God is at work within us. But we still need to avoid feeding our corrupt natures. We need indeed to do the very reverse. We need to make sure we are resisting those things. Once again, it's worth quoting Paul to the Galatians. Just after saying what I quoted a moment ago, he says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. He, of course, is talking about the Holy Spirit there. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. Be careful about the concept of authenticity. There are many other examples I could give, but I I won't. I mean, the most obvious, of course, is the uh, secular concept of identity. But but there's, there's, there's something else. Something equally important and something that, judging by this letter and indeed all his letters, greatly concerned Paul. It's the worry about uh, people who will teach or display attitudes that appear to be Christian or even super-spiritual, but on close examination turn out to be uh, uh, secular philosophies or attitudes clothed in Christian garb or uh, corruptions or misunderstandings of the gospel. An example of secular attitudes clothed in Christian garb is provided by some very worrying things you can read online about Christians and power. It's got a lot of Christian garb around it, but it sounds very much like the secular idea of getting power. And in relation to corruptions and misunderstandings of the gospel, the problem is not that they come dripping with heresy. That would be easy to spot. Actually, many of these things, teaching and attitudes, come with a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth in them. That's why they're dangerous. They are very plausible. 
And that's what Paul was worrying about here. Let me give you an example. Consider this. Christians do an awful lot. They're constantly working. They rush around and they get exhausted. But we shouldn't do that. We should remember that it's God who works, not us. We should relax. Wait on God. Let go and let God. We don't need to strive. Now again, there is a lot of truth in that. But it isn't half partial. And strung together like that, the end result is something that is fundamentally wrong, even though it sounds super spiritual. What does Paul have to say uh, 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 about this? Well, read verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who've not met me personally. He says similar things in lots of his letters. Paul worked really hard. He recognized that he had to rely on Christ working in him and through him. And then he got on with it, working hard. And we should do the same thing. By the way, have you noticed how often Paul in his letters tells his readers how he led his life as a way of telling them how they ought to be leading their lives? And this is another example of it. Uh, The second example of the same thing uh, relates to our attitude to suffering. Now, the corruptions of the uh, uh, biblical worldview in relation to suffering can be quite subtle, but they exist in a huge number of conversations, casual conversations between ordinary Christians. I suspect that many of us, perhaps most of us, have been involved in conversations in which the underlying, unspoken and unchallenged assumption is that Suffering is bad and is to be avoided, and that when a Christian suffers, it's worrying because we're intended to experience joy and God should be protecting us. Now, once again, there's some truth in that. Of course, suffering isn't intrinsically good. Furthermore, quite clearly, Uh, God wishes us to have the joy of his salvation. But those assumptions, stated as I've uh, put them, actually are so inadequate as to be wholly wrong. Again, look at what Paul says in our passage today. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and he suffered greatly throughout his life, all sorts of things. Take a, take a read of uh, the first half of uh, the second letter to the Colossians, if you'd like to read more about that. He suffered greatly, but... He embraced it. He rejoiced in it because he understood that Christ had said that his followers should take up their crosses and follow him, that no servant is greater than their master, and if they persecuted Christ, they will persecute his followers. And this isn't merely a question of external uh, opposition. 
Don't forget that making sure we don't feed our corrupt natures itself requires a struggle as well. We need to remember that, otherwise we'll go badly wrong. And we, we need to be very cautious, very wary about teaching which fails to appreciate those, those things. These types of things are assumptions among Christians and are teaching you here even for within the church. We need to be very careful of them. By the way, when Paul writes, um, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking with, in regard to Christ's afflictions, he does not mean that in some way Christ's death on the cross was not adequate to secure our forgiveness by God. Much less does he suggest that his suffering is in some way redemptive. Now, what he's saying is this. He recognized that in order for the church to be built up, people like him had to go out and proclaim the gospel, tell people about Jesus. And he knew that would result in opposition. And he knew that it would involve suffering. But he accepted that. He saw it as part of his service of God and he was prepared to serve God and we should have the same attitude. We must be careful. We must be on our guard against all of these things. And how should we do that? Well, we've gone full circle. We need to seek the riches of complete understanding so that we would know Jesus properly. And be able to test things. Test all that we are assuming. Test what people are teaching us. Including, incidentally, testing this sermon. Going back, is it right? Is that what the Bible is, is, is saying? But we should remember, always remember, that the object of this is not simply head knowledge. Although that's important, by, by the way. Paul certainly did want people to know things. But the ultimate objective is, is not to know a philosophy or to know abstract principles. It's to know a person, to know Jesus and his will. And the objective of complete understanding is so that we can move to Christian maturity and serve Jesus as we should. Do you remember Paul's prayer? Go back to chapter 1, verse 9. Paul said this, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Putting the matter the other way up, if, if we want to please God, and I hope we do, we need to bear good fruit, uh, fruit in good works. If we want to bear fruit in good works, we need to be mature Christians. And if we want to be mature Christians, then we need to seek the riches of complete understanding. And that's best done in the context of a fellowship united in love. Let's remember all of that. Amen.